Welcome to the Report Card, where we evaluate efforts to improve the lives of families, schools, and students. Earlier this month, the famous or infamous U.S. News and World Report college rankings were released. Princeton and Harvard again topped the list, followed by a handful of other elite Ivy League schools. This raises some questions. Are these rankings the most important things students should consider when applying to college? Should they consider them at all? I mean, that raises a better question. How do students choose a college, and how should they? That's exactly the question that Michael Horn answers in his new book, Choosing College, How to Make Better Learning Decisions Throughout Your Life. So, as high school seniors start a school year and begin the frantic search for college and the application process, I wanted to bring Michael on to tell us how students can be better consumers and how parents, guidance counselors, colleges, and even policymakers might help them in these life-altering choices. Michael, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So, Michael, as I alluded in the intro, U.S. News and World Report, right? They rank all the colleges. They got all these 200 colleges. I know which ones are best. U.S. News and World Report, they must be experts. How useful do you think this kind of cold ranking system might be for students when they're trying to choose which college to go to? Yeah, I would say it's not very useful at all, frankly because it doesn't understand the context that an individual student is in, what success looks like for them, the progress that they're trying to make, and their situation, frankly. What bounds them? What's their time considerations? What's their money considerations? What are they trying to do after college? And only once you consider those factors can you actually say, this is the best school for you. Otherwise, you're just sort of shooting in the dark and playing to the averages and playing on the uh, whims of prestige and all the things that cause people to ascribe lots of value to the U.S. News and World Report rankings. Because as you've said, they've been doing this for, what, three or four decades now. So they must be experts. They must, must know exactly. Right. But the problem is that value and quality, these concepts, those are not absolutes. Those are actually relative concepts. And what's valuable for one person in one context is totally irrelevant or even hurtful to someone else in another context. And these rankings, they ignore that. What's more, they also sort of create this image that there's only a few good colleges that you could possibly go to. Right. So they create this notion of scarcity, which I think has caused a lot of the rat race that you see of students doing all sorts of things and parents doing all sorts of things just to get their kids into college, the varsity blues scandal yep. and so forth, which just creates a lot of social anxiety over this decision. And I think it misleads students to making choices that actually aren't best for their current path and their current situation. So to get to a point where you want to sort of help students make better decisions, you first did a bunch of interviews with a bunch of students to figure out how they actually make their decisions. I'm assuming U.S. News and World Report is not the overwhelmingly influential document that they're all using. So how do they make these decisions? Yeah, so we, we created essentially over 200 mini documentaries of students actually making the decision. And the logic is rather than asking students, how should you improve college? Students will lie. We all, all will lie about That's what right. we want because not because we're bad people, but because we don't know. It's not sort of our business to know exactly how to improve something. But if you watch what people do in the heat of the moment of making a decision, you can start to understand what are they prioritizing? What trade-offs are they willing to make? And what are they really trying to get after? What does success look like in their minds? And so you realize that it's not just the rankings that are playing into it, although they are, but it's also this social pressure around them that's driving them. It's an emotional pressure that's driving them. And there are some functional considerations. I mean, the other piece of this is the narrative right now in higher ed is everyone's going to college to get a job. 
Not really true when you actually look at the 18-year-old making a decision. Sure, it's part of it. They sort of feel like, I hope it'll get me a good job on the other end. But we know that the teen labor participation rate right now in this country is the lowest it's probably ever been. And students going to college have no concept of what a job is. So what we found through these mini documentaries is that there's five, what I would say, groupings of reasons that cause them to actually choose the colleges that they do. So break down those five real quick for me. I mean, how do they break out? Yeah. So the first one is what we're calling help me get into my best school. So this is sort of a redundant or circular, if you will, job. But these are students who are going all about the act of getting into the best as they define the best for them. That can be rankings influenced, but certainly not always. It can be a variety of considerations that defines what best looks like for them. The second one we found is help me do what's expected of me. So these are students who are going along to get along because someone else told them that they ought to go, not because they're super excited about it. Third one we found was help me get away. So these are students who are running away from something, home life, bad situation in their town, whatever it might be. And college is a socially acceptable answer that they can say, I'm going to go do that. But they're not actually excited about the college experience itself. The fourth one we're calling help me step it up. So these are students who look around them, say, I like a lot of my life right now, but this part of me, this job I'm working, this area I'm in, whatever it is, it's not who I am. I need to step it up and I need to provide for others. And then the last one we found, we're calling Help Me Extend Myself. So these are students who are sort of going for the love of learning, if you want. They want to challenge themselves. They want to learn more. But it's not just about the love of learning. They have a deep desire to be more and a yearning that I've always wanted to do X. And now I have the time and money to be able to pursue that dream. Right. So an important thing to help the audience understand about the book is Oftentimes, there's a stereotype of who a college student is. Well, obviously, they're a college senior getting ready to go off to college, but those are not the only people making decisions for college, right? Yeah, absolutely. So in the book, we're literally looking at age 17 all the way up to age 60. It's a pretty wide set of ages because the reality is college in this country looks like that. There's a lot of adults who enroll in colleges and not just colleges even. I mean, I've heard people say, well, that's a really misleading title, choosing college, because you're talking about boot camps and you're talking about online programs and so forth. And it's true. We're looking at anything that's higher education. College is obviously the hook because it's sort of the zeitgeist right now in society. But we're looking at anyone who's trying to get more education and sort of level up in their lives as they live them throughout age 60. And and the reality is 40% of students in traditional post-secondary programs are adult learners, meaning over 25. Yeah. It's also... Choosing college has a better ring than choosing university, college, boot camp, or other post-secondary options. So, you know, that makes sense. You talk to a lot of students in this book. I'm sure some of them did a great job choosing colleges. Others probably didn't. What would you say is the most common mistake that students make in these choices? Yeah. So the biggest one is if you're in the help me do what's expected of me job or the help me get away where you're running really from something or you're going for someone else, going to a four-year college, really bad idea. It's a lot of commitment when you don't have that desire around that commitment or that excitement around the choice. So like, help me do what's expected of me. These students are super apathetic about the choice. 74% of them in our data set dropped out or transferred. Not to say that would you know totally be the case across a, a huge population, but the point is it's pretty bad. And what we do know, so the college debt crisis, if you will, in this country is often exaggerated in terms of its impact. But where college debt can be very punishing is if you go to college, don't graduate, and you take on debt, because then you don't get the boost in earnings from that degree, and you have some debt hanging over you. That's 
brutal with Help Me Do What's Expected of Me. Same thing in Help Me Get Away. These are students who are running from something. Success for them is literally getting out of that situation. And then they're like, oh, now what? Well, if you've just committed to a four-year school with the high price tag associated with it, when times get tough, it's not a great reason to be there because you sort of don't have that intrinsic why that will keep you enrolled. So in the book, you talk about how students should not ask, where should I go to college? But they should ask, why? So first of all, draw out that distinction for me. What are you trying to allude to? And then how might that change in focus from where I should go to college to why? How might that change students' decision-making processes? Yeah, totally. So there's a ton of books out there that talk about where or how to get in and all that stuff, right? Or writing the donor check to uh, get a building named after you, right? You know, that's the best path. But in seriousness, though, no one steps back and asks, why are you going? And that's a way more foundational question, because if you understand why, then you can start to say, okay, these are the factors, the features that are important to me and how I should prioritize. So it's not that we don't say you should at some point say where you obviously should, but first by acknowledging your why and where you are, that starts to put up some guardrails. It starts to say, this is more important to me than that. And then you can start to broaden options around those factors. And you'll see that there are many more schools or many more options than you ever otherwise could have imagined that fit your criteria and will be good fits for you. If you just run into it, I mean, we see, this is another common mistake we see a lot of students do is they know the school that's going to really excite them. And so they're super excited about their first, maybe second, maybe third choice of schools that they apply to. And then they throw a whole bunch of schools on the list as safety schools because they just feel like they ought to because they know it's hard to get into college. Then when they don't get into their dream schools and they only get into the safety school they're not excited about, then what? And so our sort of statement is, well, if you had started with your why for going, you wouldn't put schools on that list in the first place that didn't hit that criteria. And so that's why it's really important to start with that foundational question. You know, this is a little bit tangential, but I think it bears on the question, especially for students coming out of high school. They're trying to get straight into college. There seems to be this myth that, man, it's super hard to get into college. Is it super hard to get into college? I'm glad you asked the question because it's way overwrought. So if you look at it, there's more people applying to selective colleges than ever before. But a large part of that reason is because there's this thing called the Common App, which makes it super easy to apply to lots of schools. You just hit you know, replicate in essence, and and you can do it over and over again. And so the numbers of people actually trying to get into all the schools, if you combined, are not nearly as competitive as it makes it look if you look at only one school where, yes, the admissions rate might be very difficult. Right. So So the Common App means that a given school can get way more applications. They don't up the number of kids they take in. So their admissions rate goes down. That's exactly right. So, you know, like when I went to college 20 years ago, you know, it was a selective school. It was, I don't know what the rate was, 15, 20%, right? Now they're getting probably four times as many applications and their selectivity is down to 5%, right? So that's how the numbers work. Now, the reality is though, if I spread myself across all those elite schools, I'm probably going to get into somewhere. The other reality that I think most people don't know is there's actually only a few schools that are super selective like that. And that if you actually look at the universe of American higher education, there's plenty of open access institutions that will take almost anyone. There's plenty of institutions that sit in the middle that'll have admissions rates somewhere between 25 and 75 percent. And you stand a pretty good chance of getting into at least one of those. And so it's better to identify what you're going for rather than sort of anchor on the selectivity question. So one other quick question, and this may be sort of 
sacrificing part of the premise of the book. But we still want to think about colleges as, you know, well, the whole institution has a certain marginal benefit. So the question is, is the marginal benefit for these super selective colleges actually that much greater than the somewhat selective colleges, maybe that take less than half their kids? I would say it depends on your walk of life. And so this is where there seems to be evidence showing that if you're the first in your family to go to college, or you come from a background where not a lot of people have gone to higher education or you low socioeconomic, going to, say, an Ivy League school can be life-changing in terms of the fortunes that it has for your family tree, simply because of the social capital that I think it accrues to you. You, right. you start to enter networks that you otherwise would not have entered, which can change the jobs that you'll get, change what your family will have available to them and so forth. Otherwise, I think the evidence is kind of scant that there's huge, significant differences. As long as you do well at your school, that seems to be a much more powerful predictor than the school you go to. And frankly, I mean, the thought exercise that I always love to run is, where's the value in an Ivy League school? Is it in the education you get or is it in the front end, the admissions that has selected you now into this group of students for all the talents that you were already bringing to the school that you probably would have developed one way or another over the next four years, I would argue that admissions signal is disproportionate part of the value. Yeah. And it only gets stronger with 50% higher. Yes, uh, exactly. Because it it accrues more elite advantages and more perception. So back to the why as opposed to the where. One thing that is important to note here, you called the book Choosing College, as you already mentioned, but the why approach doesn't necessarily lead to a four-year college, right? Yeah. I mean, what are the other options that students should be aware of? And, you know, what are the pros and cons associated with them? Yeah, well, so this is worth walking down some history, I guess. So if you went back to the 1970s, you had a lot more options after you graduated high school for what would come next. There was certainly college, but there were trade schools. There were going direct into jobs. There was military, of course, and so forth. As we've gone through the 1970s into the 1980s and so forth, We have narrowed that narrative in the United States and said, basically, college is your only option, except for a scant few that will do the military. Less than 1% go into the military. So that has, by implication, left college for everyone else. They call that college for all. College for all. Yeah, okay. Yes, yes, yes. We should get to that in a moment. But part of that is because manufacturing jobs largely disappeared in the country and you needed more knowledge workers. And so there was an economic imperative that drove part of that. But I think the really unfortunate thing is it's cast out on all these other pathways that are out there that actually do produce really good economic outcomes, good life outcomes for students. So for example, you can go to a trade school, become a welder, become an electrician. Turns out, by the way, H folks in Massachusetts where I live, it's super cold there, so you need them. Big shortage of them. It's really hard to find HVAC people, so they earn a lot of money. Supply and demand happens to matter. You don't have to go to college, right, to get into that pathway, and you can do great. For some students that go for an associate's degrees, if you go into a particular professional program through that associate's degree, many of those people out-earn folks that earn bachelor's degrees. And so really, I think we've created this narrative in society around the college decision, as you said, that everyone needs to go to college, when in fact, there are other pathways that do great for individuals. And rather than saying, one thing is right for everyone, we ought to just be talking honestly about the different pathways and where it does pay off and where it doesn't, because there are a lot of other options. The other very cool thing I think right now that's happening is there are new programs emerging in the education space that were not there before, that are faster, cheaper college alternatives in many cases, things like coding boot camps, things like on-ramp programs, 
Kenzie Academy in Indianapolis and others that basically say, we're going to put you through a short program and make sure you get a job on the other end. Clearly, it's not right for everyone, but for many students who have some sense of this is what I think I really want to do, that could be a great pathway that many more students ought to uh, consider. And we haven't even talked about apprenticeships and other pathways like that that are starting to emerge in the conversation here in Washington, D.C. So, you know, it's interesting that you have talked about these different alternatives, and we've talked about it in the context of a college for all this sort of overarching narrative that says, you know, college is the way to go. And this is not just sort of this loose narrative. It's often a narrative targeted at our disadvantaged students in high school, right? So you were coming through and saying college is the only way out. I wonder about your thoughts just generally on whether there's a little bit of crowd out in that narrative so that these alternative institutions, they're not the college for all. They don't fit that narrative, which may be where the philanthropy and the policymaker attention and the other things that can line up these programs, make them grow up so that they can serve students for a different why other than aware. Do you think there's some crowd out that's been happening and is it loosening up? Yeah, I, I do think that there's crowd out that's been happening. I think a lot of the folks in the education reform movement in particular have said, well, college on average pays off better than others. And if you say that you shouldn't go to college, would you say that about your own kid? That's sort of been the narrative around the college for all. Like, which is a tough question. Which to is answer. a tough question to answer, <laughs> right? No, no question about it. And so the way I approach it, I think, is more we should understand a student's why and their trajectory and what their passions are. And then help them find the right pathway for them. Because here's the reality. It's not that college isn't a great thing for those students that will be successful in it and, you know, use it to their benefit. I'm not pushing against college as a good pathway for many students. What I am saying is it's not for all students, at, at least right after high school. And so there, go back to that help me do what's expected of me student. We talked to some students who went to no excuses. That's no longer what you're supposed to call them, but right. no excuses, charter schools who from day one, it's been drilled into them. You're going to college. You're going to college. You're going to college. They show up to college. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of work on their end. And they have no idea actually why they're there other than that voice has been telling them to go. Times get tough. They start to look at the financial burden on their families. They start to look at a whole range of factors. They say, this isn't worth it. And they drop out. Now they have debt with no degree. That's not a particularly great answer either. And so I think the bigger thing is we've got to be creating a variety of pathways that can work in different circumstances and, and, and understand the context in people's lives more than just sort of this browbeating of just there's only one pathway. That's just, it's just not going to lead to success. Absolutely. I think that's true. And I'm going to look over here at our producer, Cody, for up or down here, because I'm pretty sure that the college completion numbers would bear out that this is a pretty widespread program. Six-year graduation rate for students approaching four-year institutions is less than 60%, right? 51. 51, 52%. That's certainly a signal that maybe we should do a little bit better matching on the front end. Let me ask you about some of the sort of system level implications of this. For instance, if a student decides that he wants to go to college or she wants to go to college to get herself a skill or career for a specific field, how good is the information that she has available to her that connects between the program that might give her that feel for where she should go and the opportunities available to her? Yeah, it's a great question. I think increasingly there's more data that can help answer those sorts of questions. I'm not clear that we're presenting the data that actually understands where the students are so that they can use that data in a, in, in a useful way. And from my perspective, 
Sure. I would love to see more data. I'd love to see the college scorecard get more transparent, more program level data. I think that would be all very useful. But I actually think we need to crawl inside those different pathways and contexts and jobs to be done to give contextual information that helps guide someone as they're living life in real time. And so, for example, if you want to be a physical therapist, where you go to college is not actually that important. What's really important is making sure you get the licensure on the other side right. and that you can get into a place that accepts medical reimbursement and so forth to build a thriving practice. Again, where you go to school is not that important. It's about getting the degree and moving through it. And so helping someone understand that and then saying, okay, these programs all have great passage rates for this field. That's the information that they need because they've already sort of in their mind committed to this. And so then they can make a choice. Okay, what's the most affordable direct pathway into that? Forget about the brand name. Someone else who has a very different picture of what they want to do, maybe brand name and social network are going to be far more important. So they would choose according to a different set of heuristics. I don't think it's just the data alone, though, that's going to help them make that choice. It's understanding their context and their decision making and folding it out in a way that matches to that. So This brings me back to this divide between sort of traditional and non-traditional students, right? It would seem to me that in your interviews, you would see like a difference emerge between them. Let me lay out what I would suspect it would be. For a bunch of high school seniors who are thinking about where to go, they see not college as, you know, something necessarily to get away from, but a lot of the time, it's the next step. It's just where we go. I'm still an adolescent and I'm going to, you know, emerge from that adolescence as I go through college because I don't really have a concrete idea of the why I'm going to college to lead me to a program. Whereas I would imagine non-traditional students, adults with children, career reinvention, that sort of thing, that they're going to have a much firmer grasp of the why. So did that differential between non-traditional and traditional students come up in your interviews? Yeah, for sure. So not 100% correlation by any stretch of the imagination, which is why you want to actually look at the individual in their context. But, you know, help me get into my best school, help me do what's expected of me, help me get away. Disproportionately, those were 18-year-old high school graduates that were experiencing those. And help me step it up, help me extend myself. Disproportionately, were older students who had a clear idea of what they wanted to get out of the experience. Now, for the help me step it up, for example, they might say, I'm working the front desk at a healthcare facility right now. I see that if I could become a nurse, that I could get you know double the amount of salary. I'm pretty clear on what I want to do. Go back to school, get the nursing degree, and then boom, right? That's, right. That's helped me step it up. But for some students, they, didn't, they lacked that clarity. So they might say like, ah, gosh, I think I kind of want to be a teacher. I'm going to go do that. And then like after a semester, they're like, I hate this. And then they would drop out. So What's clear is not to assume that the adults have that crystal clarity, but I think colleges, as they start to design themselves, need to really screen and help people make sure that that's where they are so that they're not taking in students who actually are not prepared for the experience that they're about to have. That makes a lot of sense. You have a quote in the book that sort of pushes, first of all, it's a great quote, (laughs) but it also goes to the point that, yeah, there's a role for students to change the way they make their choices in college, but there's also roles for institutions. So this quote is by Harvard's Theodore Levitt. He's in the business school there. And he said, about companies, they need to realize that people don't want to buy a quarter-inch drill. They want to buy a quarter-inch hole. How does this relate? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the point is that people aren't interested in your product or service for its own sake. They're interested in it for what it's going to allow them to do. And, and the, the one editorial I would add to Theodore Levitt's comment is the other part that's missing is why 
do they want the whole, right? Are they going to hang a picture? Is it to do wiring? Because depending on that context of what you're going to do with it, shapes what is a good solution versus what's a terrible solution, right? right? I could just puncture a hole with my fist in a wall. And that's great if I'm just doing maybe some wiring. It's a terrible idea if I want to do some decoratings to try to impress you when you come over, right? Sure. Like that makes no sense. And so that context is really everything. And colleges and universities, I think, have to understand that, that in some cases, and to help me get into my best school, it's true. They're being hired because they're the college. It's the next logical step, the language you used, right, earlier. I'm going along because I think this is what I'm supposed to do. And frankly, the people that have the help me get into my best school, they often have the sense of I deserve this experience because I've worked really hard and I was told that this is what I'm supposed to do next and I want it. And so in that case, colleges and universities are right. But once then the student gets into the school, then there's like, okay, I just fulfilled my job to be done. I'm in. Now what? And you're going to have to create something else that's more meaningful. And so that's the big point of this jobs to be done thinking. And this quote from Theodore Levitt is, it's not just about the product and service. It's about the experience itself and what it allows you to do once you're consuming it. So I wonder, going back to the difference between traditional and non-traditional folks, but that may allude to this, but I'm more concerned with the, the real question of how often do the folks that you interviewed, and do you think that students who are approaching the decision to go back to college Approach it as an investment as Mm. opposed to the next step on the path where it's sort of less of a cost benefit analysis and maybe just a benefit analysis. Yeah, I think you're right. If you look at how higher ed professionals and writers and people in this industry and policymakers talk about higher education, we talk about it as an investment. But when you look at how students are actually talking about it on the flip side, particularly the traditional students, they aren't seeing it that way at all. It's just the thing that they're doing next. It's all about the benefits of it. It's all about the fun that they're going to have, or it's about the thing that I'm just doing because someone else told me. But either way, they're not really seeing it as an investment in their future with something that it will yield. And so you can give them all the data in the world. If you go to the school, your ROI is likely to be this. Don't don't you see you're an idiot for wanting to go there, blah, 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 blah. They don't care because that's not why they're going. That's not their calculation. And so Again, you know, back to your other question about data, we can have all the data in the world. If it doesn't align with why you're choosing, it just doesn't matter because it misses the causality at work in your life, in other words. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, it may go some distance in explaining why tuitions can keep on increasing because people aren't really putting that ROI into the equation. They just look at the options that they're going to pursue and they think, I'll pay it off at the back end. Let me ask a question about improving choices. We know it's obvious that if students make better choices about where to go to a college, benefits will accrue to them. Makes sense. What about systemic improvements? Or let me put it another way. Would the benefits of better choices accrue not just to students, but also to the way colleges and post-secondary institutions operate? Yeah, 1000%, right? And you can see it in right now that you cited the six-year graduation rate from four-year programs. That's right is pretty abysmal. And then the return on investment in a lot of these schools is pretty abysmal. If you were taking students who were excited for the right reasons and matched up with what your program has to offer and would actually graduate and then get a good job on the other side and so forth, from a systemic perspective, this would improve the performance of schools dramatically. And one of the conclusions in the book that we we had is a lot of students ought not to go to college right away and ought to take a gap year of sorts. And I don't mean gallivanting around Europe or something like that, but working a series of jobs taking maybe a coding boot camp, taking a few online courses, an internship here, an apprenticeship there, whatever it is, a set of experiences 
where they actually start to learn about what do I like and not like so that they can make a better choice. And then maybe they're ready for college and fired up to go. This sense that it's just a conveyor belt, that here's your next step, works against that for the schools themselves and for the goals of policymakers that are trying to improve outcomes for these learners. It's just working at odds with it because college, the first year experience is not going to actually help you understand, gee, this pathway looks more interesting to me than this pathway, because at most colleges, you're taking gen ed requirements that are sort of your writing and your math and so forth. That's not going to teach you what you need to know to build that passion purpose and make a better choice. Yeah, it's hard. I can see what you're saying. And I want to put in just a vote for the the good possibilities of a gap year in Europe. That said, <laughs> I'll also say that, you know, especially for traditional students that are sort of going down the conveyor belt, as you said, there's not a lot of grist for the mill for them to develop a why, right? And, yep. a, and a year of experience can actually really ground that decision. And there's research that. behind it, by the way, right? If you look at students in control for demographics, test scores, and GPA, those students who've taken gap years do better than those students who have not when they actually go to college. Now, the big trick is you got to go. Of course. And then, you know, the other thing that I would just want to add on the back end of the comment, we talked about four-year completion rates. And I don't want the audience to think, oh, yeah, two-year colleges are much better because their completion rates are are terrible. They are absolutely at the bottom of the scale. Let me give you a quick lightning round. I'm going to rattle off some sort of people that might influence students, be they traditional or, or adult returning students and their decisions on where to go to college. And you tell me what advice you can give them to help those students make better choices. Sound good? Yep, sounds good. High school counselors. High school counselors, they ought to be helping students see that there are many options besides just the rankings list a view of what college is. Parents. Parents ought to be not be the reason that are forcing your child to go to a place that they don't want to go to. And too many parents are just sort of, you're going to college, you're going to college, you're going to college, and almost pick the list for them. And it doesn't match with the why that the students have. Education reformers. (laughs) Education reformers, I think, need to step back from the college for all narrative. They need to see that we need actually more options that result in good outcomes for students. And when I say that, I'm not just saying sort of, you're low income, you should therefore go to a trade and not college. That's not the statement that I'm making. It's just that we need different pathways for people from all walks of life so that they can make a choice that's in accordance with where they're likely to be successful. College administrators. College administrators need to focus on one or two jobs to be done at most and stop trying to be all things to all people. In other words, they have to decide we're going to suck at this and then optimize for something else. Teachers. Teachers, I think, have a pretty pivotal role to play in students to help them develop their passions and purpose. So much of high school right now has become reading and writing and math test scores. And it's sort of had this unfortunate narrowing on the curriculum where students, I think, are not getting nearly as much exposure to other fields as they could. And teachers ought to be a part of that work that broadens a kid's horizons. So last question. I want to revisit this college for all. I think that it creates a context for a lot of these things that can go underappreciated. Let me give you a little bit of history, and then I'll just ask you to sort of comment about it. Back in 1980, these are statistics on nationally representative surveys of school counselors. In 1980, 43% of school counselors encouraged students in the highest 25%, the top quarter of academically performing students, to go to college. So not even half of them were encouraging the top students in 1980. By 1990, that's just 10 years later, there's been a huge shift. And that shift has certainly continued since then. But 10 years after 1980, 60% of counselors were encouraging the lowest scoring students 
to go to college. And certainly the higher achieving students, they were encouraging at higher rates. So they went from barely encouraging high scoring students to go to college to encouraging everyone to go. How profound is this in just the transformation of the culture that, you know, the the water that we swim in, the air we breathe about college and how much it shapes the choice that so many students are facing, especially right out of high school. I hadn't heard that statistic before. That's stunning. And context is everything, right? Context gives meaning. It tells you what's good or bad in a certain situation for that individual. And if you go back a little bit further, you know, in the nation's founding, Thomas Jefferson's writing about the purpose of college and so forth, he and others envisioned our education system as a sorting system, right? There would be some people that would go to grammar school, among them managers would go to high school in effect, and right. then only the political elite would go to college. An egalitarian vision, to be sure. Yeah, to be, <laughs> to, to be sure, right, is only someone on a plantation in Virginia could write about. Right. But I think it's just we've taken this system and these structures that were built for few and all of a sudden said it's for everyone. And then we're shocked that it doesn't work for everyone when it was never built to be so. We're taking a a system that was tailored for, I think, a couple different circumstances and trying to make it one size fits all. We ought to instead be viewing this as how do we create multiple pathways? And many of this will go through college. And I think colleges can play a big role in this. This is the thing. I think they can innovate and create better programs to serve students. They might have to disregard their accreditors a little bit along the way as they do so, but they can innovate to create better options for students. And I think all ed reformers ought to be part of this. One other thought. We've seen, I think, a lot of the charter schools that were on the College for All bandwagon realize that colleges do not work for a lot of the students that they were sending there. And so you've started to see a lot of innovation of a variety of types. The one that I'm really interested in is uh, Duet, which came out of the Match Charter Schools in Boston, where they basically said, we're going to take the culture of the Match Charter Schools and use the Southern New Hampshire College for America online degree and blend them into a blended hybrid experience for students in Boston that will results in a job. And the return on investment that these students are getting is astronomical compared to community colleges with similar two-year programs. Totally redesigned experience results in really great outcomes, really geared at a particular student in a particular situation. I think that's the sort of thinking we need as opposed to sort of the blind college for all mantra. We need to have more nuance and fabric into this to say that there's different pathways for different students depending on where you are at this point in your life. Michael Horn, thanks for coming on The Report Card. The book by you and Bob Moesta is called Choosing College. You can pick it up wherever books are sold. These days, yeah, Amazon and so forth, right? Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to The Report Card with Nat Malkus. And special thanks to Michael Horn for coming on the podcast. This episode wouldn't have been possible without our team of producers. That includes Cody Christensen, Sophia Gallo, Tyler Hoover, and Gage Hurley of Liquid Media. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for other episodes, Drop us a line at ed.podcast at aei.org. If you enjoyed this episode, take a minute and subscribe on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast player. And if you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes or Google. Until next time, I'm Nat Malkus. Malkus.